we're going to do something a little bit different. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get, get going here this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and thank you so much just for the opportunity to gather together as a group of believers. Father, we thank you for the strong message we heard from Chris this morning and the uh, faithful exposition of 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, Father, we're thankful for a church that, that is willing to stand up and preach the word boldly and, and tell us those truths that, that we so desperately need to hear. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be with us as we uh, open up your word in this class today and that you would uh, give us clarity and... and uh, and make your word clear to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I don't know how many of you already know this, but last week our uh, youth group went to Washington, D.C. Um, for camp this year. And this was my first year of going to camp, um, so I wasn't really sure what to, what to expect. Um, however, I did realize very quickly there are a lot of moving parts to pull off a camp like this. Uh, has anyone ever been to one of the youth camps from here? Okay. Um, so what I figured out was our church does everything in-house. So Rob basically organizes and plans everything. Uh, Chris and a few of the youth lead the music. And we also take something called the cow from here at the church. How many of you have heard of the cow before? Somebody, okay. It's spelled K-O-W, and it's, it stands for Kitchen on Wheels. It, it, it's basically a pull-behind trailer that's equipped with a refrigerator and stove. Uh, it's got a sink and I think a microwave in it. Um, and Vivian West leads a crew of awesome volunteers that prepares three meals daily for nearly 200 campers out of the back of that trailer, out of the cow. So, it's, I mean, that part alone is a major undertaking. How many? Yeah, good meals, good meals. Is that what I don't know? I don't know if they got it painted or not. They, it's Chris. They very well may have. Um, and we also had two camp nurses that went with us who take care of all the bumps and bruises and and tummy aches that happen at camp. And two of the nurses, Leslie was one of them, and Melody Gentry's the other one. Um, they were kept very busy this year because at the campground we were so we we stay in camping tents. And at the campground we were staying in, they had one of those radar detector things that like the police put out on the side of the road to, to see how fast cars are going. They had one of those in the campground. And so you could imagine all the testosterone-laden young boys who were racing in front of that thing to see how fast they could get. Um, lots of skinned knees, lots of skinned hands. Um, I think there was actually a couple of college kids that ended up getting like 20 miles an hour in front of that thing. So it was... I think that was the record high score for the week. It's pretty awesome. Um, now, the way the camp is structured, they finish every day with a worship service. So after supper, we all gather together by, under this big pavilion, and we would have singing, a time for everyone to share. If you've ever been to the youth group down here, they, would, they give the youth an opportunity to pass around a microphone and share what they've been learning, and then they do a sermon. So my role at camp this year was to do the sermons each night. It was my responsibility to decide what we would study, and then I had to do five lessons on that subject. And with actually Craig's help, Craig was the one that helped me pick what we would do, we decided to go through the entire book of Jude for camp. Um, so that's what we did. Um, however, when I, when I didn't realize was that when camp was finished, the youth gathered back together on the first Wednesday night back, and they did a series recap on all the lessons. So... They, they had a camp video, but they would invite all the parents to come in and all the campers and all the kids that didn't go to camp, and we would just kind of rehash everything that we did. So five hours worth of sermons crammed into one, into one big lesson. And so that at the beginning of this week, that's what I was doing. I was scrambling trying to get that one sermon together. And, uh, but with the Lord's grace, I was able to get that done. But then shortly thereafter, I got a message from Craig that said, hey, it's your week to teach Sunday school. <laughs> So instead of trying to plan something entirely new, I thought it might be interesting for you guys if we just go through the Jude summary lesson so you guys can hear what we did for, for camp. So just basically a 30,000-foot flyover over the entire book of Jude. Now, how many of you are uh, somewhat familiar with the book of Jude? Read it before? Awesome. Have any of you studied it like in-depth before? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a weird book, really. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's got some odd stuff in it. 
Um, Jude is the little obscure 25-verse book that comes right before the book of Revelation. So if you go all the way to the last book of the Bible and go back one book, you're going to find yourself in Jude. Um, so actually, let's go ahead and do that. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Jude, and then we will jump in. And I think the best thing we can do is just read the book. As you can see, it's, it's not a huge letter. The whole thing can be read in just a couple of minutes. And by reading it in its completed form, we get to see all that Jude intended us to see just in one big fell swoop. Um, and because Jude is an inspired writer of Scripture, what he has to say is infinitely more important than anything I have to say. So let's give first priority to the reading of God's Word. So Jude verse 1, that's what he says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. So that's Jude's letter. It's short, but man, it carries a punch. Now, as I said at camp, we took these 25 verses and broke them down into five lessons. So we'll just, we'll just start with a recap of lesson number one. Um, so our first day consisted of waking up super early, coming to the first service here at church, and then we all loaded into vans and drove eight hours to the campground in Maryland. 
Um, we then rolled off the buses, took some time to find our tents, get settled in, and then we grabbed some supper. And then finally, about 9 o'clock at night, which we started our first lesson of Jude, and that kind of tickled me what Mike Grayheck was telling me a minute ago about y'all's trip to uh, New England. Y'all said y'all's lessons didn't get started till late at night too, right? Or you didn't get in till late? So at camp, it's, it's late nights. Um, the first lesson we covered was verses 1 and 2. And our focus was on why we should be eager to study the book of Jude. So to start that night off, we took a few minutes just to examine who Jude was and why that should be important to us. And what we saw that night was that Jude is not only an inspired New Testament writer, but he's also the half-brother of Jesus. And you can find Jude's connection to Jesus in Matthew 13, 55, where Matthew names off some of Jesus' family, and he lists James and Jude as his brothers. And Mark does the same thing in Mark 6, 3. However, if you go back to either one of those passages in an English Bible, you'll notice that the name Jude isn't on the list. Um, instead, you'll see the name Judas. And that's because Jude, Judas, and Judah are all spelled the same in Greek. In fact, the new, the, in the English, the English name Jude is only mentioned once in the New Testament, and it's in Jude verse 1 where he gives his name. And the, the commentators believe that, that they do this so that there's a differentiation between Judas, the brother of Jesus, and the other Judas. But there are like eight different Judas, Judases in the New Testament, so there's, there's like eight of these guys. It's a very popular name back then. Um, but Jude's connection with James in verse 1 is also vital in making these family ties, right? And so just so you know, this James, where he says brother of James, the other bro brother of Jude and Jesus, is the author of the New Testament book of James, right? And he was one of the prominent leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And that's why Jude can say, I'm the brother of James and not elaborate any more of that. Everyone in the Christian community knew who James was. It would be like, Leslie coming up and saying, yeah, MacArthur's my uncle, right? We all know, who, in our circles, we know who John MacArthur is. He's not her uncle, by the way. I'm surprised, and it's all true what you're saying, I'm just surprised that he emphasized the brother of James yeah. rather than the half-brother of Jesus. Yeah, and that's awesome that you say that because I'm, I'm going to touch on that okay. just a little bit. Um, and, the, and one of the reasons I think that they do that, because that's obviously what we would do, right? If God was your half-brother, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I know Jesus. <laughs> um, and that, that's kind of where we're going next. After, after seeing this family connection between Jesus and Jude, we're going to look at some of his spiritual history. And we learn that James and Jude were probably not believers of Jesus when he was alive. Uh, for example, in John 7, 5, Jesus' brothers actually teased him about being a miracle worker. Um, we also looked at Mark 3.2 where Jesus' family went to get him from a place where he was teaching because they thought he had gone crazy. So from these accounts, it seems like Jesus' brothers were not convinced that he was who he said he was when he was alive. Um, but again, notice the major contrast here. In Jude's introduction, he calls himself Jesus' slave. So what happened? How did James and Jude go from being unbelievers to calling themselves slaves of their older brother? And the answer to that question is they probably changed their minds after seeing Jesus resurrected from the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, um, we see that Jesus appeared to his brother James and, and others after the resurrection. And I can only imagine that seeing your brother murdered on a cross, put in a tomb for three days, and then come back to life probably has a way of changing your perspective on your brother. But I think there are other reasons as well why they might, might not just come out and say that they're Jesus' brothers and instead call themselves his slaves. Um, and that is, I believe they probably remember some of the teaching that Jesus gave while he was alive. Uh, so if you look at Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, we have an instance where Jesus is teaching and a woman cries out above the crowds and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So she says, Jesus, your mama has got to be so proud, right? She's got to be one proud lady. And Jesus' reply was, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, it's far, far better to be one of my followers and obey my word 
than it is to be related to me. All right? And you can see another one of these instances in Mark 3.21. Um, Jesus is teaching, and his family gets word of some of the things he's saying. And like I said a minute ago, they think he's gone crazy. They're concerned about Jesus. So they go to where he's teaching, and they try to bring him home. But the crowds are so big that they can't get to him. And so word gets passed along to him that, hey, Jesus, Jesus, your family's outside and they want to talk to you. right? And in Mark 3.31, here's what it says. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your, mother's and your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And again, do you understand what Jesus is saying? Just a, a, a question that I have not thought about before. Why was Jesus' mother? That's crazy. I know. Thinking that, oh, he's, he's gone crazy. Well, I don't understand that. Yeah. I wish I could help you. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't understand it either. I mean, you think about all that lady went through up to that point. More than that, what the angel said yeah. before she goes. Yeah. Yes, I have no idea why she would why she would be, you know, thinking that he's gone crazy. And then her pronouncement after he was born. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good question. I can't help you on that one. I have no idea. Um but again. Yeah. But again, I think we get a picture of, of what of what's really going on here. Family relationships don't carry a lot of weight in this equation. Regarding Jesus, it is far better to be an obedient follower than a blood relative. And Jesus' true family are those who put their faith in Him. And I think Jude, James and Jude come to realize some of this after His resurrection. And so instead of name-dropping their brother like, like he was you know, some celebrity, they humbly submit to Him as one of His slaves. Right? They're not going to elevate some earthly relationship that means nothing. Instead, they want nothing more than to be like all of other, Jesus' other disciples who trust in Him for, his, for their eternal salvation. So Jude and James are no longer unbelievers, but now they're devout followers of, of their brother. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I just think it's really neat to see these connections. Like I, I told the youth that one of the reasons we should be excited about studying the book of James is simply just because of who the author is. Um, so after taking some time to examine who Jude was, we then turned our attention to the audience. Who was Jude writing this letter to? And the answer to that question, again, is we don't know. Jude doesn't tell us specifically who this letter was written to. Now, there's no doubt Jude wrote this letter to a particular church in a specific geographic region, right? That's a given. The problem is we don't have a clue who those churches are because nobody tells us. Instead, in Jude, we have a letter addressed to a people of a distinct spiritual standing. In verse 1, Jude addresses this letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, in this recap lesson, we don't have time to parse all those words out like we did at camp. We spent a lot of time on this stuff. But essentially, those three words describe truths that apply to all Christians. Alistair Begg, he gives an excellent summary of Jude's audience. He says, we don't know who they are or where they are, but we do know what they are. They're Christians. Well, this little detail is incredibly helpful because it means whatever Jude has to say to those first century Christians is directly applicable to us in the 21st century because we would fall into the same category. A Christian is a Christian no matter what century they live in. So this means if you are a genuine born-again believer then Jude's description of his readers is also fitting for you, right? And again, I wish we had to take time to take a deep dive into these three words because they are so sweet. But instead, I'm going to try to give you guys the condensed version. And the first thing I told the youth that, is very that it is very encouraging to know that Christians are called by God. Because from a purely human perspective, salvation looks like we just came to our senses one day and chose to follow Jesus. It looks like we decided to stop doing whatever bad things we were doing and started to go in church and living morally. But the Bible tells us what really happens in salvation. The Bible shows us what's going on behind the scenes. It tells us that when we felt this 
irresistible urge to give our lives to Christ when we heard the gospel, it was because God was calling us. He's the one who opened our blind eyes to see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. He's the one who sovereignly plucked us from the pit of destruction and summoned us to come to Him. He's the one who regenerated our dead hearts and gave us an affection for the living God. Right? He's the one who did all the work, so He deserves all the credit. We are simply the recipients of His gracious actions. So the fact that Jude reminds us that we are called is a really, really sweet reminder of God's work in our lives. Right? And I shouldn't skip over the fact that Jude also emphasizes that Christians are beloved in God the Father. Right? So what does that mean? Well, think about it. In our natural, unbelieving state, um, Paul says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We reject God. Um, we are blind and, and deaf when it comes to God's glory. Um, we love the darkness and long for the pleasure that sin brings us. And we have dead hearts that do not find any beauty in Him. So let's be honest. We, we don't have much going for us that would make us lovable in God's sight. But the Bible tells us that God set His affection on us anyways. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we were rebellious against God and rejected Him, He sent His Son to die on a cross so that we could be reconciled to Him. Right? That is the ultimate act of love. And it shows us the great lengths of, that God went to so that our wretched souls could be saved. Right? So the main thing that I tried to show the campers was that we didn't go looking for God. He came looking for us. He was the one who went on the rescue mission. Right? We turned our backs on Him. We didn't want anything to do with Him. Yet in eternity past, He chose a people to set His love on and then sent His Son to die on a cross so that those people could be brought near to Him. God does the loving, God does the choosing, and God does the saving. He is the primary actor in this drama. So all glory goes to God in salvation. He is the one who steps out in love to rescue His enemies. Again, really, really sweet truth, and we're just in an introduction. And then lastly, here in verse 2, Jude says the recipients of this letter are kept for Jesus Christ. That's another important word that plays a key role in this letter. Jude will keep returning to this idea that Christians are kept for Jesus Christ. So why is that an important concept? What does it mean that Christians are kept for Jesus Christ? It means that if God sovereignly set His affections on you, sent His Son to die for you, and orchestrated your salvation by an effectual calling, He will not let you slip through the cracks. You're His, and He will keep you until the very end. Your salvation is secure for all eternity. Right? John, John 10, 27-30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, what a reassurance. So at camp, I tried to make the point that our relationship with God, and this was the example I used, is not like some earthly marriages. Here, people make vows all the time that they don't keep. Here, when things get complicated, when things get painful, people sometimes run. It's not that way with God. In Christ, God is committed to bring you across the finish line to glory, and He will keep His promise. So it is true that we will continue to sin, we will continue to fall short of our calling, we may even be persecuted for our beliefs, or we may have false teachers come along who will try to lead us astray. But if you're truly His, He will ensure that you make it safely home. So Jude's introduction to his letter can be a real blessing for us if we just slow down and take the time to listen to what he's saying. His description of a Christian reminds us of God's kindness and salvation, and He assures us that, that God brought us to salvation and He fully intends on keeping us there. So why is that, why is that important? Why would, why would Jude kind of lean toward those types of things in, in an introduction? Well, that's, what we went, that's where we went on night two. On night two, we looked at verses three and four. 
And verses 3 and 4 give us the reasons that Jude wrote this letter. In verse 3, Jude states that his original desire was to write a letter discussing their common salvation, but found it necessary to appeal to them to contend for the faith. And this is a guess, but I suspect Jude wanted to talk about the glories of Christ, the, the mercies of the cross, and the grace of forgiveness. He wanted to talk to his readers about the wonders of redemption, but he wasn't able to do that. Instead, he says he found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what was, what was needed? What was his purpose for writing? These churches needed to contend for the faith. But again, what does that mean? So at camp, I explained that in ancient times, contend was a term that was often associated with athletics and, and military campaigns. And the basic idea is to struggle against. Um, think about two gladiators locked together in the battle in the Colosseum, right? As the two warriors clash swords and they fight with each other, they're trying to win the victory over their opponent. So they're contending with one another to survive. Um, I also used the NBA Finals that just ended a few weeks ago. The contenders for the NBA uh, championship were the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. As those two teams fought against one another, they were contending for the championship, right? They were battling against one another on a basketball court trying to win the victory. Jude's just taking that kind of imagery and applying it to Christ's church. He's letting his readers know a battle is being fought in their churches and they need to get engaged. They need to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, right? And that's important, once for all delivered. Because even in Jude's time, the truths of Christianity were already established and being disseminated throughout the world. If you think about it, these believers already had a completed Hebrew Old Testament or a com completed Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. Jesus had already come in the flesh. He had spoke his divine authoritative messages and died on a cross as an atonement for sin. And he had risen from the grave and ascended back into heaven. The apostles and their close associates were already inspired by the New Spirit and had written the new most of the New Testament. Uh, from what I could tell, most commentators date Jude in the mid to late 60s, which means nearly all of the New Testament had been written, with the possible exception of John's letters. So that's a, that's a pretty good bit. So in this line of succession, a fixed body of central beliefs was already grounded, well-established, and being dispersed. So issues like God is the Creator, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the atonement, the resurrection, final judgment, uh, Lordship of Christ, numerous other essential doctrines of the faith were already established in writing. So Jude is saying the faith, the objective truths that constitute Christianity have been delivered to you once and for all by Jesus and the apostles and the New other New Testament writers. They are there for your instruction and growth. However, you must contend for them. Right? This is the main reason that Jude pins his letter. He's writing to encourage believers to fight for the truth because the faith is being jeopardized by people who want to twist the apostles' teaching to mean things it was never intended to mean. Right? And that's where Jude goes in verse 4. He alerts his readers about people who have snuck into churches and are trying to lead the believers astray. Right? He says, "...for certain people have crept in unnoticed." who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude tells his readers, certain people have crept in. They're here. They're in your midst. Throughout the New Testament, we have numerous examples where Jesus and the apostles warned that false teachers would come. But when we get to Jude, he says, they're here. Right? This is no longer a future proposition. These ungodly people were already in the churches by the time they received the letter. The infiltration was successful. Yet what's interesting about the book of Jude is that Jude never tells us what these false teachers taught. We don't know what specific heresy was being taught in these churches. So just in case you're keeping score, we don't know who Jude wrote this letter to. We don't know where they're at. And we don't know what the false teachers were teaching that made them false teachers. Does it kind of strike you as odd? Like, how can you be on guard against false teachers in Jude if you don't know what they're teaching? 
How does that work? But it doesn't really matter when you look at the last few words of those verses, which say anything that denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. All false teaching that goes against that. Yep. It has to be all-inclusive. Yep. So you have to know the truth in order to discern the truth. You do. That's absolutely correct. But Jude never goes there. Jude's description of the enemy doesn't necessarily include doctrinal issues. You may not be able to spot these enemies by their teaching. Instead, Jude says you will spot these people by their character and their conduct. Do you want to know how to spot someone who's a false teacher? Someone who may potentially lead Christ's sheep astray? Look at their lifestyle. Jude says they're ungodly. The enemy will expose themselves by the way they live their lives. And at camp, I really harped on this point. I wanted to make sure the kids really understood this point. False teachers don't always occupy pulpits and teach Sunday school classes. Sometimes a false teacher can be an ungodly friend whose lifestyle entices you to walk away from the faith. They may lead you astray without ever speaking a word of doctrine. They may never directly come out and reject a specific teaching of Christianity. Now, their lifestyle will go against it, but they may never verbalize that. Remember, these people are in the church. That means they will go through the motions while they're here. They'll come in and sit beside you in the pew. They'll raise their hands as we sing. They'll go to the small group with you when the teaching's done. But Jude warns that pursuing holiness is the furthest thing from their minds when they leave this place. They're not true lovers of Christ. In other words, these people may attend church, participate in all the activities, but outside of church they live their lives as though God doesn't exist. In verse 4, Jude calls this perverting, great, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now at camp, I spent a lot of time talking about what this means. When we tell people the gospel, we tell them that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins so that... God can extend grace to them and forgive them of their trespasses. And that's good and right. We want people to know that God extends grace and forgives sinners. We want people to know the best thing you could possibly do is take advantage of God's grace, repent of sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. So, so God's grace in forgiving sin is the precious gift that we hold out to all people. But did you notice that I said part of the gospel message is telling people they must repent? Repentance is a necessary component of the gospel message. Repentance is the fruit of true conversion. So to have saving faith, we must agree with God's evaluation of our sins, turn our backs on our sins, and flee to Jesus. Jude says these, these teachers were perverting grace into sensuality. They look at the grace offered to them in the gospel and say, that's awesome. I would love to have forgiveness of God. But I'm not going to stop looking at pornography. I would love to have God's grace and forgiveness and salvation. But I'm not willing to stop sleeping around. The bottom line is they wanted grace, but they were unwilling to walk away from their sins. And their sins tended to be sexual in nature. Right, but this concept of twisting or perverting grace is not, not limited to sexual deviancy. There are many different ways we can pervert God's grace. The big picture idea here is that people were thinking about salvation like it's a safety net. They don't really want to change, but they would like some assurance that everything will be okay if they die. They want to have both. They want one foot in the church, one foot in the world, and Christianity doesn't work like that. Right? It's essentially an attempt to manipulate the precious blood of Christ into a get-out-of-jail-free card without stopping the criminal activity. And when you pervert God's grace in this manner, you essentially deny Jesus' lordship over your life. You confess to loving Jesus with your lips, but your lifestyle says something different. I think what Jude is getting here is similar to what Paul says in Titus 1.16. Paul says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Uh, Jesus says the same thing in Luke 6.46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Right? You can say that Jesus is your sovereign Lord and Master, but if you neglect to do what He commands, you show that you actually reject His Lordship. Again, these false teachers in Jude show their true colors, not in what they said, 
but in how they lived. That is how they endangered the church. And the reason I chose to do this book for our camp is I think it's important that our young adults know that being a false teacher doesn't always mean someone is preaching incorrect theology from a pulpit. I told them that if you profess to know Christ, but you come to the youth group and have no desire to grow in holiness, you're exhibiting the same qualities as a false teacher. If you profess to know Christ, but only come to the youth group to distract and influence other kids in negative ways, then you're not that much different from the, the false teachers that Jude addresses. So I pressed, I pressed the, the young, I keep wanting to call them kids, they're not kids, young adults, to really think hard about that point and examine themselves. The book of Jude really is a double-edged sword because one, it provides an excellent opportunity for the kids to do some self-reflection to see if they're truly in the faith, but it also provided a good opportunity to show them what to be on guard against. Right? There are, type, there are the type of people, um, the false teachers who live ungodly lifestyles are what Jude's saying be on the watch for. Right? And you know how easy that could happen in a youth group. So it was really helpful for that. So that was the, that was the gist of lesson two. We saw, we saw Jude's reason for writing. We need to contend for the faith. And we saw why. Ungodly people are creeping into the churches who pervert God's grace and deny Jesus Christ. We need to be warned that these people are here so that we're not misled by their influence. So lesson three at camp was titled Examples and Applications. And it's verses 5 through 16, that huge chunk. And these, these verses were the most difficult to navigate in the whole book. And the reason they're so difficult to navigate is because Jude pulls in material from the Bible. He pulls stuff in from Jewish tradition. He reaches out and pulls stuff in from the popular culture at his time, all to make a case against these false teachers. And so it's very easy for us to get distracted by Jude's use of these other sources and not focus on why he's using them. Okay, it's what we call missing the forest for the trees. However, if you set aside your curiosity, not that those things are not important, they are, but for the purpose of what we're doing here, if you just set your curiosity about the material Jude uses aside, and instead just focus solely on the logic of what he was doing, this passage is not that difficult to navigate. Um, in this portion of Scripture, Jude is simply giving a history lesson about God's judgment and then using those historical examples to condemn the ungodly people of his day. So, for example, in 5 through 7, Jude reminds his readers of three examples from the past where God brought judgment against ungodly, immoral people. Those three examples are Jesus' destruction of the grumbling, unbelieving wilderness generation, that, that died after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The second example was God's chaining up of angels who rejected His authority and disregarded their assigned boundaries. The third example is the destruction of sexually immoral and perverse cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude just lays these three historical examples out for, to, to the Jews of his time who would have been familiar with these stories to make the point that God always punishes sin. And then in verse, Jude, verse 8, Jude makes an application to the false teachers of his day. He says, these people, these unrepentant, ungodly people who are invading the church, they do the same thing as these three historical examples. Right? So the implication is that these ungodly people of his day who are driven by their dreams, engage in sexual immorality, and commit slander concerning heavenly matters, should expect the same judgment that God has brought against ungodly people in the past. God sees them. He will judge them. Now, if you understand what we just did with those verses, you're very capable of following the logical flow of Jude's argument in verses 5 through 16. All he's doing in this passage is providing examples from the past, making an application to the present. The word these or these people are the key words that let you know Jude is transitioning from example to application. So in verse 9, Jude moves to another example from the past. He discusses the archangel Michael's interaction with Satan when they were disputing over the body of Moses. Don't get sidetracked by the fact that this story is not in your Old Testament. 
Jude's pulling in something from his culture that those people were familiar with. Instead, focus on the point Jude's trying to make. And here's, here's the point of Jude's use in this story. Michael did not step outside the bounds God had given him to operate in. He knew his place in the pecking order, and he was faithful. His job was to carry out God's commands, not dispense justice against the devil. Michael's not like the angels from verse 6 who rejected God's authority. Instead, Michael left the judging to God. So that's Jude's example from the past. Then in verse 10, we get the application to the present. Jude says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So if you, if you inspect verse 10 closely, you will see that the word understand is used twice. Jude says these, these, these teachers, they speak foolishly, they blaspheme about things they don't understand and are destroyed by things that they understand instinctively. When it comes to religious matters, these people like to run off at the mouth about things they don't understand. That's how they're different than Michael. Michael the archangel had self-restraint and knew when to be quiet. He did not speak up and step outside of his sphere of authority. Jude says these ungodly people can't help themselves. They let their foolishness be known by running off at the mouth about things they don't understand. And this is a shame because it is what they do understand that's going to get them destroyed. And what do they understand? They understand sin. Essentially, this is Jude once again pointing out the sinful, immoral lifestyles that mark ungodly people. He says they're like unreasoning animals. They don't think rationally. Instead, they're driven along by their passions and their desires. And they have one goal in life, and that's fulfilling whatever lust is currently in their hearts and minds. It drives them, it controls them, and Jude says it will destroy them. Now in verse 11, Jude repeats the pattern. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So in this verse, Jude gives us three more examples of ungodly people who face God's judgment in the Old Testament. Again, at camp, we took the time to discuss each of these characters from the Old Testament and the decisions they made that, made them, that led them into God's judgment. Obviously, I don't even know if we're going to get through all this. We don't have time to do that, so let's give you a brief summary. First, you have Cain. right? That's the Cain who killed his brother Abel in the opening chapters of the Bible. On the outside, Cain looked religious. He offered sacrifice. But in reality, he rejected God because he wanted to do religion his own way. Second, you have Balaam. Balaam's story is found in Numbers 22 through 24, with an additional note in Revelation 2, 14 about Balaam. Balaam is on Jude's list because he represents someone who faced God's judgment because of greed and sexual immorality. And lastly, we have Korah. Korah's story is found in Numbers 16. Korah was part of that wilderness generation that was judged by God. He rebelled against Moses' leadership, and God judged him by opening up the ground beneath him, and he and his whole family fell to their deaths. So these three individuals are examples from the biblical record of people who were controlled by their sinful desires and faced God's judgment because of it. Now surely we know what comes next. Jude makes an application to his contemporaries in verse 12. And verse 12 begins with the word these, right? That's his reference to the ungodly people who were creeping into the churches. Jude says they're just like the previous three examples in that they're hidden. He calls them hidden reefs, self-consumed, shepherds feeding themselves, spiritually dead, shameful, and they will lead you astray if you're not careful, right? He makes a reference to wandering stars. And at camp, I use the reference of uh, on the wandering stars, um, the cartoon, Moana. You remember the movie Moana, the cartoon? Maui taught Moana how to navigate the seas by watching the star, right? Well, what good is a, a, a star that wanders? It's going to lead you off track, right? And that's what Jude's saying here. They're like wandering stars. They're going to lead you off the path. Okay, and then lastly, we finished up the third night of camp by looking at verses 14 through 16 where Jude looks at a prophecy from Enoch. And again, it's not in our Bibles, 
but it shows that God will come with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on these religious pretenders. Now, I pointed this out at camp, but I want to do it again here this morning. I want you to notice that we're 16 verses deep in this 25-verse letter, and Jude still hasn't mentioned any, any doctrinal deviations yet. Instead, his focus has been on the lifestyle of these false teachers. Now, look at verse 15. This is who God will bring His judgment against on the last day. God will come to execute judgment on all and to convict the, all the ungodly, so there's one, of all their deeds of ungodliness, two, and that they have committed in such an ungodly way, three, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He uses the word ungodly four times in one verse. So Jude's point here is unmistakable. Ungodly people are under the wrath of God. And if they don't turn from their wicked ways, they will face God's unrelenting wrath on the day of judgment. So if you don't want to be led astray in your walk with Christ, who should you avoid? Ungodly people, right? So that's the basic summary of night three. We just followed along as Jude gave us a historical reminder of God's judgment against wicked people. Jude wants his readers to know that these people are not going to get away with anything. God sees them and he is not happy. Now, on night four of camp, we looked at verses 17 through 23, where Jude turns his attention to the believers. He looks at the believers in these churches and he instructs them on how to fight against the ungodly people, right? This is how we contend. This is how we fight. And the first thing Jude tells them is, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and the apostles predicted that these people would infiltrate the church with mocking and scoffing. So we should not be caught off guard when they show up. However, I took this opportunity to say, it's hard to remember something you've never heard or read. Jude is telling these people in these churches to remember the apostles' teaching. Now, it's possible that these people may have heard instruction coming from the lips of an actual apostle. These are first century believers. We don't have that benefit. Instead, we get the apostles' teaching from our Bibles. So if you're not regularly reading your Bible, you don't have a clue what the apostles said. And if you don't know what they said, you can't remember it. And if you can't remember their teaching because you've never read it, then you have no defense when the people show up to lead you astray. So, so I took this verse to encourage them to read their Bible so that they can remember what the apostles taught. Because our knowledge and memory of Scripture is the first line of defense. Now, after reminding these believers to keep the apostles' teaching fresh in their minds, Jude tells them how to fight for the faith. In verse 21, he commands them to keep yourself in the love of God. That's the main verb in that passage. Keep yourself in the love of God. So what does that mean? How do you keep yourself in God's love? If we go back to the introduction of the letter in verse 1, Jude tells us that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Right? And didn't we say that that means God is the one who, who makes sure that our salvation is secure? If we fast forward to verse 24, Jude tells us that God keeps us from stumbling. So in verses 1 and 24, Jude is saying God keeps us. But in verse 20, he says we have to keep ourselves. Is Jude confused? Like what, what's going on here? And the answer is no, Jude's not confused. He knew exactly what he's saying. Um, if you look at John 15, 8 through 11, in an NIV version, which I, I don't know if anybody in here would have one, Jude explains this concept perfectly. Jude says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 10, listen to this. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. So you can see very clearly in this passage from John that obedience is required to remain in God's love. That tells us that obedience is at the root of verse 21 in Jude. When He tells you to keep yourself in God's love, He commands you to Live a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. That there's a dual aspect to this concept of 
being kept and keeping. Tom Schreiner explains it this way. Those who trust in Christ remain in the faith because of the preserving work of God the Father. Nevertheless, the promise that God will keep His own does not nullify the responsibility of believers to persevere in the faith. God keeps His own, and yet believers must keep themselves in God's love. Jude represents well the biblical tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, believers only avoid going stray, astray because of God, the grace of God. On the other hand, the grace of God does not cancel out the need for believers to exert all their energy to remain in God's love. Schreiner is saying that it takes both for you to stand firm in the faith. God must graciously keep you, and you must work really hard in walking in obedience. So this is how you contend for the faith. Abiding, yep. Christ, and that is how we do that. And we, we can't do anything apart from Him. Yep. God grafted us in, so it's all Him doing, it's Him working, unless we would give us the desire yep. to do so yep. and to obey Him. Yep, you are absolutely correct. Yep. So, like she just said, that is how you contend for the faith. He empowers you, and then you work your butt off. When someone tries to pull you away from Christ into a disobedient and immoral lifestyle, you don't go with them. You remain steadfast and obedient to Jesus Christ. You remain in His love. Right? And thankfully, Jude doesn't leave us hanging here. In verses 20 and 21, we have three participles that tell us how to keep ourselves obedient and in God's love. We do it by building, praying, and waiting. In verse 20, Jude tells us the first way we keep ourselves in God's love is by building ourselves up in the most holy faith. If you're going to contend for the faith and false teaching when it comes to the church, then you must grow in Christian maturity. It's okay to be a new Christian. It's okay to be a new baby in the faith, but it is not okay to stay there. To be protected from those who would lead us astray, we must continue to press deeper and deeper into our faith. We read our Bibles, we learn more doctrine, we grow in holiness, we pursue sanctification, we spend more time in prayer, right? If you want to keep yourself in the love of God and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, then you need to grow in Christian maturity. That's what Jude's saying here. Now, the next thing Jude says we need to do to keep ourselves in God's love is pray in the Spirit. And please understand that Jude is not talking about some kind of mystical experience where you speak in tongues or anything in like that. Um, all Jude is saying in this verse is that you need to be praying. He's talking about common, ordinary, everyday, bow your head and pray to God prayer. Um, I did challenge the youth at camp on this point. I, I asked them, are you praying regularly? Right? And I would challenge all of us with this as well. Is there a part of the day that we set some time aside for the sole purpose of praying to God, asking Him to help us understand Scripture, to grow in holiness, is there a time when we bow our head, confess our sin, and ask God for forgiveness? Right? If we want to keep ourselves in God's love and to be able to contend for the faith, we better be praying in the Spirit. And then the last way Jude tells us to keep ourselves in God's love is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. As Christians, we should long for the return of our Lord. Um, when it came to this point at camp, I told a, a story about it my family's dog. Any, anybody else in here have dogs? Okay, sure you have the same experience. Um, when my family leaves, my dog usually pouts for a little bit. He'll go to his bed, he'll lay down, but no matter how long we've been gone, five minutes, a couple of hours, when we pull back in the driveway, our dog is standing in the window with his head sticking through the curtains looking for us. And when we get out of the car, he goes nuts. He runs to the door. He's jumping, barking. He knows we're home, right? He gets so excited to see us because he was waiting with eager anticipation for that moment when Leslie's big red van pulled back in the driveway. And, and I think that picture of my dog captures what Jude's saying here, right? We're Christians. We're named after Jesus Christ. He's the one who awakened our dead hearts. He's the one who rescued us from our sins. He is the one who keeps us from falling as we navigate this broken world. His life is the one we try to imitate 
we pray in His name, our whole lives are consumed with Him. So we should be like my dog. We should be on our tiptoes, eagerly awaiting that day when He will return to us. If we're that consumed with His return, I think it's safe to say that we will be acting rightly and keeping ourselves in His love. Right? And then lastly, we closed out night four by looking at Jude's final appeal to believers in 22 and 23. In these verses, Jude tells us to extend mercy to those who have been influenced and led astray by these ungodly people. This is the third way that we keep ourselves in God's love and contend for the faith. Here, Jude is talking about reaching out to those within your congregation or your sphere of influence that may have been persuaded to some degree by by these ungodly influences or even the the ungodly influences themselves. I I can't do it here, but there's there's an elevating level that Jude shows here. There's three different levels that he's telling you to extend mercy to. Right, so, so I use this point to talk to the kids in the youth group about reaching out to other kids who may be on a destructive path or may be being influenced by, by other people. Right? Show mercy to those kids. Don't ignore them. Don't abandon them. Don't treat them like they're just the bad kids and we're not going to talk to them. Show mercy to them. Right? And I think that's applicable to us too. Um, try to pull those on back to the narrow path. Um, Kind of bounce forward here. Oh, so night five. This was the last night of teaching at camp, and we focused our attention on Jude's doxology in verses 24 and 25. If you remember, again, we walk through this, but a doxology is simply the worship of God. The writer is captivated by God, and he begins writing words of worship and praise. Well, that's what Jude is doing in these final two verses. He's praising God. Um, and I broke this passage down in such a way that we were able to consider Three great truths that you provided for us. And the first was considering God's great ability to keep us and present us blameless before Himself. Um, like I said, the theme of keeping and being kept weaved its way through the whole week. So here at the end, Jude once again reminds those who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ that He is able to keep them. He's able to keep you secure in the faith and prevent you from stumbling away to destruction. But not only that, God is able to present you blameless before Himself. Jude is saying God is able to take us rebellious, ignorant, blind fools and present us blameless before His throne in heaven. That's incredible. And that thought pushed us to our next point where Jude explains how God is able to present us blameless before Himself. He does it through our great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So the second point on that night of camp was considering our great Savior. And this was probably my favorite part of the teaching time while we were at camp because when we got to this point, we took some time to see how the gospel works. I tried to show as clearly as I could that Jesus' work on the, how Jesus' work on the cross actually benefits us. We saw that because of His sinless life, He was worthy of being a suitable sacrifice before God. We looked at the great exchange that took place on the cross. We looked at how our sin was placed on Jesus and God poured out His wrath on His own sin-bearing substitute. And then we looked at how we are able to stand before God blameless because we're given credit for the righteous life that Jesus lived. Right? That is the exchange that was made at Calvary. God put our sins on Christ and treated Him as though He were a sinner then God put Christ's righteousness on us and treats us as though we are blameless. It's always such a sweet time when Scripture provides an opportunity to look at Christ's work on the cross, and Jude provides the perfect opportunity to do that in verse 25. And then our last point of the night focused on how amazing our great God is. Right, And in the, at the end of this letter, it seems like Jude just begins naming these qualities and attributes of God. Jude ascribes to God glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So it was an awesome way to end the letter, calling out those who would attempt to lead Christ's sheep astray. Jude's essentially saying, you guys obviously don't have a clue who you're messing with. Our God is mighty and majestic, and you're foolish for provoking Him. Now, I close the camp teaching sessions with with making one final point. I told the kids that after juxtaposing the lifestyle of faithful Christians 
against the lifestyle of ungodly false teachers, the one thing that I hope they took away from the teaching camp was this. How you live your life is the most reliable indicator of what you believe. Right? False teachers, false professors of the faith will use the name of Christ, but their doctrines and lifestyle will tattletale on them. It will reveal them for what they truly are. Real Christians will pursue godliness in their lives and not be led astray from the path of righteousness. So that was five nights of camp squished into one big lesson. Any questions or confusion on any of that? Is that Jude's a, I had never studied Jude before, and that was my first time actually going through it in depth. And it went from one of those letters that I've read before and go, that's kind of weird, like I don't know what he's doing. To like one of the letters, I'm like, that's awesome. Like once you actually parse out what's going on. So it's went from being one of those kind of pushed to the side to like one of my favorites. But anyway, let me pray for us and we'll carry on. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Father, we, again, we thank you so much for uh, Chris's faithful preaching. Father, we thank you for the book of Jude. Um, Father, the, just the, the, the call to live righteously and to avoid ungodly living is so clear in Jude. And, and it's just done my heart well to, to be reminded of, of, of what we're called to do, to, to wait patiently, to pray in the Spirit, Lord, and to grow in the faith. And we just thank you for your faithfulness and giving us the Word and, and showing us what you expect of us. Father, thank you for all that you do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.